uh, quiz time. Um, uh, who knows what Pentecost means? Okay, we'll hope that we can do a little better by the time uh, that we get to the end of the service. That's all right. Um, the word Pentecost comes from the Greek word Pentecoste, which means 50th. It refers to the 50th day after Passover when Jews would come back to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or the annual harvest festival. And it was a pretty big deal. Uh, Pentecost was one of just three annual uh, feasts in which all Jewish men were required to return to Jerusalem. And so if you can imagine, You've got a massive event here. Jerusalem's population was known to swell from around 100,000, which is, say, uh, I don't know, what do they say uh, Grand Rapids is? I think it's uh, 300,000 or so size city. So a third of Grand Rapids, okay, to over a million people. And this is in ancient times. And that had the effect of putting people everywhere. I mean, just packing relative houses full, um, every inn is, is completely full, there are tent cities set in and around Jerusalem, and it brought these people in from all over the world. It would have uh, looked almost like a harvest of people. Um, and it's one of the reasons why Pentecost was such a big deal in Judaism. But the question we need to think about is, uh, why, why do Christians celebrate Pentecost? And that's what we'll try to think through today. And we'll look at Acts 2, 1 through 12, to help us on our way there. Acts 2, 1 through 12. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? ask the Lord to bless His Word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, thank You for gathering us here today, and thank You for the blessing of Your Holy Spirit, and thank You for speaking to us Your Word. Lord, I am nothing, and You, you know that I am nothing, but Your Word has the power 
to show us Christ, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would show us more of Christ today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so what does this mean? That's the explicit question on the minds of these observers, and it's what ought to be on ours as well. And yet, uh, if we look honestly, at least I, I know myself, we're not, we're not always so eager to let this sort of a question in. I remember as a, as a young Christian, I used to pray, uh, once I learned about Reformed theology, that people specifically would not ask me a question about this. Why? Well, because I'm Reformed, and, and I love the idea that Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit, and I recognize that it sounds like there's a whole lot of Holy Spirit stuff here, but at the same time, I'm, I'm not Pentecostal, right? Big bad Pentecostals, right? Okay. And as a result, Pentecost makes some of us nervous. But uh, it didn't make Calvin nervous, and it ought not make us nervous, But more important than any of that stuff is, in the providence of God, Pentecost is really important to God. It's where He decided to set a turning point in His history. And it's a turning point that transforms how we understand Him and ourselves. That's what Luke wants us to get straight today. It's it's the answer to the very question these observers are asking, which is, what does this mean? So without fear... We're going to try to get into it. So first, we'll look at what happened. Second, how they responded. And third, Peter's Holy Spirit-inspired answer. Point one, what happened? Well, we could look at a lot of things, but Luke talks about one thing more than anything else in this passage, and it's it's language. He says, verse 5 through 8, Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And now, is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then he goes on after that. To spell out, I mean, he wants to take the time to spell out the whole list, a variety of languages. And there's a lot. I mean, uh, we don't have a map right here uh, in the midst of the text. I mean, you can look in the back of your Bible, all right? But but their language is as far away as Rome, China, and Africa. It's, It's the whole known world. And that means this is strange, right? And at the same time, it's, it's incredibly significant, both uh, technically and metaphorically. For one, this is technically impossible. There's no Google Translator available. And Google Translator, if you ever tried it, it doesn't work this well. Galileans were known to speak two languages, sometimes three. It was Greek, Aramaic, and, and a little bit of Hebrew sometimes. But these men instantaneously, clearly, eloquently are lifting up praise to God, not in their own language, but in everyone else's in the known world, and that begins to hit on some of the metaphorical value here. For one, remember it's Pentecost. It's the harvest festival when Jews from all over the world gather together to give praise to God for what God has given into their hands. 
But at this Pentecost, they get, they get more than agricultural gifts. As Luke puts it in, in Luke 11, they get the greatest of gifts, the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, of all the possibilities at the Holy Spirit's disposal to reveal His majesty, to reveal His work, He specifically evidences Himself to them in their hearing, not the words of a foreign language or a new language, but clear, worshipful praise to God in their own mother tongue. And so I want us to just let this sort of sit with us for a minute. How is this important? It reminds me of my own experience of being a foreigner in Belgium. Um, some of you, I'm sure, have had this experience. Being a foreigner, it's hard. And language, when you're in a foreign country, is like this constant proof that, that you are a foreigner. It's always there to remind you that this isn't your home. These people don't really know you. You see, they spoke Dutch in northern Belgium, of all things. And I, I know some of you do, and God bless you. I still haven't picked it up, and shame on me. Um, but, but, um, but seriously, trying to cross the language bridge is, is hard. It's awkward. It's embarrassing. You've maybe experienced that too. And even if you've uh, mastered the language, you probably haven't mastered the accent. And so even when you, you speak... Even when you understand, it's still there as this uh, proof that you don't belong. You don't get it all the way. You've got to translate something in order to get there. And that goes forwards and backwards. Now, it probably wasn't quite as awkward for these Jews that are here. I mean, they would have been familiar with Greek. Um, much more so than I was with Dutch. But, but even still, the required use of their second and third language was, like it was for me, a constant reminder that they were strangers there. And in that sense, the foreigners, the foreignness of language can be like a wall. You know what I'm talking about? At the same time, it can, uh, it can accomplish the, the opposite of that. It can, it can tear down walls. I still remember uh, this experience in, in Belgium. Uh, we, were, uh, we visited this, this Belgian cafe, and as we're entering, uh, we hear the sound of American English. And it was like something magical was happening in that moment. Um, instantly, I, I am drawn to it. It's like there's an alarm going off. And uh, the only voices I hear in this cafe are their voices, this, these American English voices. And I immediately, I, I started the fact checker. I mean, am I, am I hearing this right? Am I still in Belgium? Are they really speaking English? And then in the very same moment, the walls come down and I, and I find myself gravitating to this couple because it's like they're speaking my language. And it, it was like it was that language was reaching across thousands of miles of land and culture and transporting me back home. But even further than that, something, this like switch happened subconsciously. I had this instinctive sense that just because they could speak my language, they knew me and I could trust them. And that's some of what's going on here. See, language... It's more than a means of communication. 
It represents who we are. It represents the relationship that we have. It means this miracle isn't, isn't just instilling knowledge. For all we know, it's not telling the Jews that are listening anything that they don't already know. And they could have accomplished that in Greek just as well. But it's conveying the relational aspects of peace and comfort and communion. And that, with respect to their relationship with God. And that then is pretty profound. It's an illustration of the fact that just as God knows our language, our mother tongue, who we really are, He knows us. And further, He's coming to us wherever we are and as we are in order to relate with us. And in that, no one, no race, no nation, no culture is too far off to be touched by God. And that's cool, right? That's cool, right? Yeah, amen. And so, and so what do they do? Point to their response. Well, it goes two ways, as it often does. In verse 12 and 13, Luke says, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, so clearly not quite all were amazed, but others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. In other words, what we find here are both inquirers and detractors. The inquirers are mesmerized. So they're drawn to learn more. They, they have to discover what this means. They're what we call today seekers. But for the others, something quite the opposite happens. It's almost like they're repelled by what they see and hear. It's as if their defenses are up. They're ready for this anomaly okay, before it happens. Their concern isn't discovery, but a way out. They, they don't want to have to deal with what, with what this could possibly mean. And in that way, they look a lot like the people that Paul describes at the end of Acts from the prophecy of Isaiah. He says there, Acts 28, 26 and following, you, referring to people that look like these people, will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For, why? Because your heart has grown dull. With your ears, you can barely hear. And your eyes, you have closed. In other words, before it's even started, they've determined they won't hear. And as a result, they're doing everything they can to avoid hearing, to avoid, interestingly, having to deal with what is going on right in front of their eyes. It's extreme. And in this case, that means that their defense mechanism is, is making fun of it. It's offering reckless justifications like drunkenness. To put it another way, maybe that we can relate with a little bit more, more naturally, they're working that classic communication avoidance technique uh, that we've used all kinds of times before. It's called discredit and dismiss. You ever been there? Before I was a Christian, and even in the midst of my own conversion, um, I didn't want to hear. I liked my life the way that it was. And, and I didn't want to take a chance of Christianity messing with the way that my life was. So rather than, rather than moving from the justification to the answer, 
the data from the answer, and rather than moving from what I see and hear to what it means, I first decided on the answer, and then I looked for a way to support it. Put it another way, I wasn't looking for the truth, but an excuse to keep doing what I wanted to keep on doing. This is how we approach a lot of things today. Sin is one of the most tragic. Sometimes we, uh, we do genuinely, we back up into sin. We just sort of accidentally, uh, ignorantly fall into it. And at other times, um, we're far more determined. In those cases, first we make up our mind to sin, and then we look for a reason to follow through with it. Or if we're already there, perhaps, that rather than repent, rather than look for a way out, rather than, than cry for help, we look for a way to justify it. We look for a way to cover over it. We look for a way to stay there. You know what I mean? And so, uh, what's the answer? Point three. Well, firstly, it's, it's to cry foul, interestingly. <laughs> That's what Peter is doing in verse 15. He says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, your justification, it doesn't work. And you know it, and I know it. It's too early in the day for even even the most intense drunkard to be drunk. But also, these people don't look drunk. They're not speaking gibberish. They're not slurring their speech, but they're speaking clearly And of all things, they're speaking in your own native language. So this isn't the product of debauchery, but if anything, if you're searching for a solution, it's it's a gift of miraculous, supernatural intelligence. And so, what's the real answer? Well, Peter says, it's what the prophet Joel said would happen. Verses 17 through 21, there he says, "In In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall see dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what, that's what Peter sees now so clearly at Pentecost. It's that the great and magnificent day has come in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A man, he tells them in verse 22, who was attested to them by God with mighty works, exactly what Joel said, and wonders and signs that God did through him in their midst. As they themselves know, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And as a result, Peter goes on in verse 33 and he says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
And that's it. That's the answer. That's what's going on. That's what this means. At this Pentecost, the risen Christ, just as Joel had prophesied before, is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. And as a result, almost as though it were the first time, they are genuinely seeing and hearing. And that means the Holy Spirit is this critical link between Christ and Christians. He's the one who makes them both to apprehend Christ and he's the one that joins them to Christ. John Stott, he puts it in his commentary this way. It was just too good. I couldn't go without it. He says, um, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible, for there can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth. No fellowship without the unity of the Spirit. No Christ-likeness of character apart from His fruit. And no effective witness without His power. So, as a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the Spirit is dead. And so, now when we look at this inaugural outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, an inevitable question follows. What are these new seers and hearers supposed to do with them? Or more precisely, what are, what are they supposed to do with what the Spirit has now made them to see and hear about Christ? But even before we get there, it's important to note the inevitability of it. You see, this knowledge that they've come to, this understanding that they've come to is different from so much of the knowledge and understanding that we, we grapple with throughout each and every day. See, that knowledge we pick up, we take it, we store it, we save it on our computer, we sit with it, we ponder it, and, and, and we just have this freedom to just sort of do whatever we want with this knowledge. But this knowledge, it won't allow them to sit still. It won't allow them to set it aside, to, to save it for later. It's as if they have to act on what they now understand. And that's why Luke records it the way that he does. He says, verse 37, now when they heard this, when they really heard it, they really understood it, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? If you can't feel the desperation, the desperation is there. It's quite a shift from the mere inquiry that they had before. This is amazing. Now it's like, oh, help, okay? And it makes perfect sense. Just think about what's finally coming together in their heads. Now they know they're sinners. Now they know they need a Savior. But not only did they reject the Savior, but they had a hand in perpetrating His unjust crucifixion and death. And we're still, he's back. Now, now we know that's good news, but, but just imagine for a minute that you didn't know that that was good news. It would have been like a sibling rivalry gone bad. You gave that one two knockout punch to your brother or sister. They went down, but they came back. What, what do you do when they come back? Well, you know you can't endure what's coming, so you run, right? Well, that's kind of, What's happened here? The Jews, they, they, they came together, they crucified him, they killed him, they gave him the, the one-two knockout punch, but it wasn't enough, and now he's back. He's God. And the Holy Spirit has enabled them to understand who they really are, what they've really done, and who he really is. 
And so as a result, they're just filled with hopelessness, but it's a sense of despair. And yet Peter comes in immediately, and he says, says these awesome words, it's full of hope, it's for them, it's for their children, it's for everyone else. No one's too far off. And we ask the question, why? Because Jesus, he's not like anyone we've ever wronged before. So instead of saying, prepare to meet the wrath of God, Peter says, verse 38, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness and gifts for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In other words, the good news is for even you. Only turn from your sins, your rejection of Christ, your unbelief to Christ. Publicly acknowledge your submission to him through the sacrament of baptism. Say that you believe, trust in his work, his promises, and you will receive forgiveness of your sins, salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just repent and believe. And that's good news, right? Amen? And as Luke tells us, verse 41, they responded. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now that's a good day. Now the, that same inevitable question that came to them comes to us. What will you do? Or what are you doing with a, that, what the Holy Spirit has enabled you to see and hear about yourself and about Christ? That's what we need to think about here. And there are generally, I think, three uh, different responses that we take to that. The first is discredit and dismiss. Just like that first group of Jews for you, this sounds like a bunch of crazy mumbo-jumbo. You've heard it before. You'll dismiss it again. You're maybe even thinking, perhaps these guys really are drunk too. And I just want to tell you, uh, I understand that perspective because I had that perspective. I lived that perspective. I was determined in that perspective. And something changed. And so I just want to ask you, as crazy as it may sound, to take the risk Take the risk today and pray that that would change for you too. Pray, as, as inconceivable as it sounds, pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes and ears so that you would really, genuinely see and hear. Second response is inquiry. For you, this whole thing sounds weird. It's perplexing and perhaps intriguing. You're like that other group of Jews that is here, and as strange, even impossible as it may sound, you're beginning to really see and hear, but you can't quite believe your ears or, or your eyes. In your inquiry, it's not enough. You can't just stay there, and I, and I pray that you wouldn't turn away from there, but instead, listen and respond. Don't let the day go by because what you're seeing and hearing, it's, it's not an accident. It's not your imagination, but it's true. And just as Peter told those listening to him again and again, it's meant for you. You need to be saved. And at the same time, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
The third response is lethargy. This is probably where most of us are here today, and so I'll spend a little bit more time here. For us, this is uh, this threshold from unbelief to belief is one that we've we crossed over a long time ago. But today, uh, we feel tired. Our faith in the power of Christ seems like an afterthought or at least a distant thought, and in a certain way, we've become insulated to and underconfident in spiritual things. And that makes us closest here to Peter and the other apostles before the Holy Spirit moved them to really see and hear. The evidence for this is found in how we relate to the Lord. Sometimes our relationship sounds right. We ask questions like, um, dutiful questions, what will I do for the Lord today? Or in the space of our guilt, what have I done for the Lord today? Or how can I make it up to Him? But in reality, our, our relationship is turned into something of a business partnership. You see, we, we think that we can do our part. We, and, and when we do, that, that He owes us. We think we can balance the scales, that we can pay our taxes we're a people that are, are always doing our penance and then looking for the, for the star at the end. Our prayer life has descended into a wish list alone. This is what I need today, Lord. And in that sense, our part in this partnership has turned passive. It's like when the disciples asked Jesus just before he ascended, when will you, Lord, do the work of restoring the kingdom to Israel? I, we, we've done our part we followed you for a while. We've waited now. So, so when will you do your part? When, when will you complete what we've been asking you to do? Answer, interestingly again, he says, it won't be him. It'll be him in them. He says, when I send the Holy Spirit upon you, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's exactly what we see happen here to the once scared to witness even to a little girl, Peter. Peter, Peter gets up immediately after the Holy Spirit and he starts preaching. What boldness to mess around with a little bit of the language here. Peter becomes a spirit-filled, spirit-emboldened Pentecostal. Is that where you are today? I think uh, far too often we, we look a lot more like the pre-seeing, the pre-hearing Jews and disciples. We look like over-insulated, sedentary, and underconfident Christians. And that's why we need to remember Pentecost. That sound of the rushing wind, they're hearing the Word of God in their own language. They're receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. It, it broke through and it woke them up from the stupor of their dull and over-insulated life. All of a sudden, it wasn't about what they had done, but oh my gosh, look at what I've done. And look at what he's done. The Spirit provided a seeing and hearing that cut them so far to the depth of their hearts that it made their former seeing and hearing seem, even though they had walked with the Lord directly in His earthly ministry, seem as though they had never seen or heard Him before. The Spirit made them to see the truth of their guilt, the depth of their darkness, and the depravity of even their best works. And at the same time, the one 
who comes to them and graciously gives life and peace and comfort and hope and communion and righteousness and and forgiveness and holiness and everything ultimately and eternally. And more, he so joined them to Christ and made them alive in Christ that everything else fell away. No more fears. No more hiccups. But Peter is on this singular mission together with the other apostles to proclaim Christ. They were propelled to action. They couldn't help but turn to Christ, depend on Christ, and witness for Christ because by the Holy Spirit, Christ became everything. That's what we need anew, friends. We need a revival of our spirit-filled Pentecostal roots Not to speak in tongues, but to see and to hear for real. That's the solution to our spiritual lethargy. It's not that Christ isn't here. It's not that He's not reigning. It's not that He's not at work in us, but that we've become dull and numb to the true spiritual realities in us and around us. And so we need to wake up. And as we do, we'll find something happening. We won't be so easily overwhelmed by and consumed with ourselves and the world but we'll be consumed with Christ. In fact, we won't be able to think about the world or anything without thinking about Christ. We won't be able to walk by without seeing Christ, without praising Christ and sharing Christ. And not as a dutiful thing, but a joyful thing, a thing that that is screaming to break out of us. Put it another way, Christ really will be everything because Christ really is everything. Someday we're going to see that in all its perfect clarity, and and, and that's why all the heavens and all the earth will sing forth with unified, awesome praise to God. Amen? That would be a good day. Let's pray that the Spirit would do that work in us today. Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Thank you for Pentecost, and thank you for that awesome, awesome gift of your Holy Spirit. Would you bless us anew today, Lord? Would you wake us out of our spiritual stupor and dryness and fill us up with the Holy Spirit so that it is an uncontainable passion filled with joy to share Christ, to know Christ, to have more of Christ? Would you do that work in each of us, Lord, and in our church, so that this place, Lord, and each when we go out, we are a beacon for Christ, and that you would be praised as more and more look to you to praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.